Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads Community Church, our vision is to awaken the city of Pittsburgh and surrounding areas by creating cool places to experience God in local neighborhoods throughout Pittsburgh and beyond. Now here is this week's message. This morning we are um, starting off a brand new series uh, that we're going to keep coming back to time and time again throughout this year. And it's based on the Bible. Uh, basically, how many of you guys have heard of a guy by the name of Paul Harvey? Anybody? Paul Harvey? Thank you. He had this uh, thing called the, the Rest of the Story, and it was a radio show. And um, I'm glad so many people heard of it. I thought it was going to be like just me and maybe John. And that's it. But uh, it was a radio show, and it actually ran from 1976 till 2009. So it wasn't that long ago. And it only ended um, shortly after his death. I think his son, Paul Harvey Jr., did a couple of them in 2009. But then after that, it just wasn't the same. So they pulled it. And it was amazingly popular. And basically what he would do is he would share uh, a story, like a background story, about either an actor or a politician or somebody uh, whom everybody knew. And he would give a little bit of background information that was true, which means he probably got it from the Internet. But he would give a little bit of background information, uh, and it could be, you know, verified. And he would then tell you, here's the rest of the story, so to speak. Now, just just uh, bear with me for a minute, because some of you guys have not heard of it. But what he would do is he would take someone like, how many of you guys have heard of, uh, what's his name, Abbott and Costello? Anyone familiar with? Oh, lots of people. Good. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, the guy on the top is uh, Bud Abbott, and the bottom is Lou Costello. And he shared a story. I just listened to this recently. I heard it before, but I listened to it again recently. And uh, they were like a comedy team. I mean, they were these, these comedy teams that made movies or whatever. For those of you who do not know of them, they were kind of like the uh, uh, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson. When they're in a movie together, they just play off of each other and really good comedy and all that good stuff. Those of you guys who don't know who they are, they're kind of like, if you've ever watched the show, how many people watch the show Community? They're like the Troy and Abed? Okay, all right. Great comedy team, interact together, just, they just flow. I mean, they make humor happen. And what Paul Harvey did, he shared the story about Lou Costello, who um, before he was an actor, uh, he used to get in trouble at school, all right? And the teacher would make him write this phrase on the board like a hundred times. How many of you ever had your teacher make you write something on the board? I didn't know they still did that, but apparently they do. Okay, all right, um, that just shows us how bad you were in school. But anyway... They wrote this, he ma- made him write it over and over, and not just like one day that this happened, over and over again. So one night, he went out, and he started taking up boxing against his parents' will. And he boxed under the name Lou the King. And he became so good at it, if you can call that so good, that he won his first 10 fights. Like, he was, he was good at it. On his 11th fight, his father just happened to show up at the ring that night. And he saw his son, when they announced, here comes, you know, with 10 professional wins, Lou the King. And his father was amazed when his son came out. So the next morning, when he got, you know, came down for breakfast, his mom had already found out about it, and she was not pleased that he was doing this against their will. And so he, she told him that you're going to stop and she asked, do you know why you're going to stop? 
and she repeated the phrase that the teacher used to make him write on the board over and over and over. And if you've ever seen his movies, you've heard this phrase. It's, I'm a bad boy. You guys familiar with that from his movies? And he took that into his movies and made it like wildly popular. So Paul Harvey would take stories like that, background little bits of information that we didn't know that would bring them, you know, out to the public to give us a better understanding of, you know, that particular person. So that's what I want to do with this, this series called The Best of the Story. And it is based on the Bible. Uh, and one particular story we're going to look at that many of you are familiar with, uh, those of you who do the uh, Tuesday night Bible study, you're probably already familiar with this because we went over it uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but it's in the book of Genesis, chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Genesis, chapter 24. And I was sharing with them um, at, at the Bible study that I was amazed and in awe. I have read the Bible through like countless times. And many different, I read it in NASB, the Amplified, King James Version, New King James Version, the Message, on and on, multiple times in many of those versions, and just didn't really get the significance of this story until just a few weeks ago, all right? So um, we're going to start, and we're going to look at this, because sometimes when we look at the Bible, we walk away and we'll read a narrative, or we'll read the historical part, and we walk away with just the story, or just details, or just data when God's intent is for us to walk away with the best of his story that he has for us, right? So in the book of Genesis, chapter 24, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because this is uh, what is considered the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's like 60-some-odd verses, 66 verses. We're just going to touch on a couple of them. Uh, Like I said, some of you are familiar with the story. If you're not, After today, go back and read it with the knowledge that we take away and see if it impacts you even more. But starting in verse 1, Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Now, you got to understand that Abraham had now, like, he was so blessed that he had, like, literally hundreds of people working for him, of servants in his household outside of his family, uh, they were the equivalent of like a small town. At one point in the Bible, it tells us when he went after Lot, because Lot got kidnapped, when he went after Lot, he took 300 fighting men from his household, his servants, which tells us that there were more than 300 men, which means if you take in the women and children, just imagine a small town of seven or 800 people. And that's probably the equivalent of what was in his, um, for lack of a better term, entourage. All right, so verse 2, he said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? In verse 6, he says, Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for me, or excuse me, for my son there. Verse 8, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from the oath of mind. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, 
and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Now, basically, here's what's happening is, is that Abraham is like, hey, I need to get someone not from the people I'm living in because God had told them to be separated from them. They have different religious beliefs, different cultural beliefs. They worship false gods and some of their practices of religion are just downright foul, okay? So he says, I'm not, I don't want you to get a, son from, a wife for my son from there. He says, I want you to go back to where I came from. Now, here's the thing. What I want to focus on is the commitment of Abraham, first and foremost, to obey God. Because previously, he didn't obey God. When God said the oath, he just said, God said that he is going to bless me and make my descendants as, as many as the sand on the seashore, and I believe that. Previously, he didn't quite believe it. And so he took a wife from Egypt, or a maidservant from Egypt, and he went and they had a child together because they believed that was the only way to get a child, even though God had said, I'm going to bring it. And sometimes, and maybe you can identify with this, maybe you can't, God says, I'm going to do and then we turn around and say, that means I have to do because God can't. And that's what Abraham had done before. But now he's at a point where God says, I'm going to do. And so he says, I'm going to send my servant. And if it doesn't happen, okay. But if it does, it's because I'm going to let God take control of this. I'm not going to keep trying to do it in my own strength. Right? Now, here's the other thing that's really important because, and this is important. Sometimes we as children, because we all have parents, whether we acknowledge it or not, we tend to think that what we call our parents meddling is a bad thing when in actuality it's our parents showing an act of love. And we may not see it that way, but it's our parents reaching out and saying, hey, I'm going to step in and prevent you from making some of the mistakes that I've made. And sometimes we see it as our parents stepping in and trying to control, trying to rule, trying to be dominant, trying to keep us under their shell. And it's really our parents trying to say, I see the cliff you're headed towards, and I'm going to do everything I can to stop you. And sometimes the children, which we all are, we've all got parents, that's why we're here. Somebody birthed us. Sometimes the children, and those of us that have children are saying, yes, preach, amen. But sometimes the children, they don't get that. And they look at it and say, you're meddling, you're controlling, you're doing this, you're doing that. And sometimes we do have to step back and, you know, you've got to let that kid, you know, I hate to say this, this is the worst example I can give, and I didn't do this with my children, uh, but sometimes you've got to let them stick their hand in the fire before they say, ouch, I can't stick my hand in the fire anymore. But for the most part, what we'll tend to do is yank them back from the fire because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what God did for us. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He saw the sin in our lives. He knew there was nothing we could do about it. So he said, I've got to take care of this. All right, but we're, we're going to continue on. So drop down to verse 10. All right, in verse 10, it says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had his camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Now, this is, all of that is extremely important, even though it doesn't seem like it. Uh, but he went back to a town uh, called Nahor. Now, I don't know if you can see this up here, but um, basically... Just like we said, Abraham had so many people, but Abraham was constantly moving around. Nahor 
who was a, if you can see circled there, a brother of Abraham, who was called Abram back then, but then God changed his name to Abraham. Uh, he basically stayed in one place, had so many descendants, so many servants, so many people that it became a small town, all right? So he had a town where he lived, and all of the people that were in that town were either relatives, family, friends, servants, people who worked together, uh, all under the town of Nahor. So this is where the servant goes back to, to say, I'm going to get a family member, all right? So bear with me, keep going, drop down to verse 12. In verse 12, it says, then he prayed, this is the servant, once he got there, then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham. Now he's praying to Jehovah, all right? The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not he was a Christ-following, God-believing person. It does tell us, though, at one point when God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you descendants as, as much as the land on the sea, that Abraham told God, hey, I don't, how are you going to do that? I'm 75 years old. I don't have any kids. And right now, the heir to all that I own was this chief servant, who the Bible tells us elsewhere, his name was Eleazar. So this is the person who he sends out to go do uh, this, and he shows up in the town, and he prays to the Lord. Now, it's not known whether or not he was a believer or whether or not he acknowledged that who, this God that Abraham prays to, he is truly God. But he prays to this God, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside the spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now here's what happens. This is, this is amazing. Right? I didn't think this used to be a big deal. As a matter of fact, I was, I was sharing with the Bible study that, excuse me, by the way of um, praying to God and saying, God, if you want me to do this, show me something that where I absolutely, positively, I know it's you, this doesn't seem that big. He basically says, hey, God, if, if I'm here to look for a wife for my master's son. So let a woman come out and offer the water, give water to me and my camel. That doesn't seem like, you know, the fleece type thing that Gideon laid out. Let some miracle happen because it's a town. There's probably hundreds, if not several hundreds of people in there. And any woman could come out and say, sure, I'll give you a drink. So it doesn't seem like the greatest way for God to single out this is the one. But it gets better. All right, drop down to verse 15. Before he had finished praying, now this is, this is key. This is how God often works, even though we don't realize it. Before he had finished praying, and some of you guys pray with your head bowed. Some of you pray with your hands lifted up and eyes closed. Some of you pray on your knees. Some of us have before been prostrate, laying out on the floor for God, asking God to intercede on our behalf. This is what he's doing. I don't know his physical posture, but before he says amen, here comes the woman. Now, this is key because let me ask you this. How many of you guys pray when you go to a restaurant and when you're with people and you, you bow your head and pray? Have you ever had like the waiter or waitress walk up while you're still praying and then you kind of rush through the prayer because you don't want them to wait? Well, here's the thing. If you're doing that, don't rush through the prayer. Just finish your prayer. On the other hand, don't draw out your prayer because she's waiting and start, you know, praying for every knife, spoon, fork, table, 
thing at the, because that's a little mean to her. She's standing there waiting, holding trays and ready to give food or whatever. Uh, so just, just go ahead, and, but finish your prayer. That may be the only time that we know of that that person sees someone interacting with God. So finish your prayer, all right? So he goes on, before he finishes praying, before he continues, it says, uh, where am I at, verse 15, before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. Now, this is important because if we, we're standing on this side of the history, so we already know that this is the person that God brings to her. But the servant is standing on the other side of the history, and he has no idea. But take note of what God says about the person who he brings forth in answer to the servant's prayer. He says a couple of things. First of all, it is a family member, all right? Rebecca, and I don't know if you can see all this up here, Abraham had a son named Isaac, all right? But Abraham's brother, Nahor, had a son named Bethuel, who had two children, one Laban, the other one Rebecca. So this is a relative. This is exactly what he wanted, all right? But here's the other thing. Here's what else he says. He says the girl was very beautiful. The way it's written in the Hebrew, it says, like, amazing to look upon, to behold. Today you would say, she's hot. That, that's literally what it means. She was a virgin, so she was pure. No man had ever lay with her. She went down to the spring. Now, this is going to be key later because he's watching her when she comes. She went down to the spring or to the water source and then filled her jar and came back up again. All right? Now, let's keep reading. Verse 17. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him to drink. So she answered the first part of the prayer, let her give me something to drink. And she said, sure, she gave him something to drink, which, again, doesn't seem like, you know, God made this miracle happen because he asked for it. He's like, can I have a drink of water? It's like if you walk up to someone and say, hey, you know, can I have uh, I know this doesn't happen today because I I don't even think they exist anymore, but I need a quarter to make a phone call because my or better yet, can I borrow your cell phone to make a phone call? And you pray, God, let the person you want me to interact with be the one who gives me their cell phone. But he went and asked for it. But it gets better. Keep reading. After she had given him a drink, in verse 19, after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, And drew enough for all his camels. Verse 23, without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Now, this is the miraculous part that it just blew me away. Okay? This is a woman who was on her way with a jar of water to go do whatever task she was about to do. The Bible already told us that this was the time when women came out to draw water. She sees him there and he says, can I have a drink? She says, sure. She takes the water that she had for her, whatever purpose, gives him a drink, and then she offers freely that I'm going to give water for all of your camels. Now, he said, let this person, the one you want, be the person who says, I'll give water to your camels too. She says, I will give water to all your camels until they are full. Now, I don't know if you know this. You can go and Google this. 
and, and find out for yourself, but the average camel drinks anywhere from 20 to 35 gallons of water. These are camels that had already been on a trip. And so what she does is she, its Bible says, she gave water to all 10 camels. If you take the minimum of that, she carried through the jar and went back up and down to the well 200 gallons of water for a stranger, for someone she didn't know. And she already was in the middle of doing her own work. This is how he knew that this is a God thing. Now, let me put it in a context that you can understand, and I'm going to use Chuck because he's up front, and I don't want to embarrass him. But just imagine, Chuck is an amazing guitar player. If you haven't seen his videos on YouTube, go check him out. But just imagine that Chuck suddenly blows up even more amazing, gets popular, has got concerts and his own shows. And so he and his entourage are traveling in 10 vehicles, because that's how many it takes to travel them. And they all break down on 51. And they all break down maybe about 300 feet past the Sunoco. And so there's a woman that comes walking by with a five-gallon jug because her car is just past theirs and it broke down. And so Chuck says, hey, I hate to interrupt you, but we ran out of gas. Would you mind if we use that to fill our car? Because we've got somewhere to go. And she says, yes, Chuck, I'm going to fill your car with gas. And I'm going to go back and fill all other 10 vehicles. So she goes and fills his car. She walks back to Sunoco. She fills that up. She comes back and fills his tank up. And then she does that for all 10 cars. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Chuck, I'd marry the girl. Because you're not going to find someone today who is, with everything that's going on in this world, stops their life, their work, what they're doing, and says, I'm going to devote considerable time and energy and human resource to you and all that you have going on and take it away from what I'm doing. And that's what she did. And the reason why I said he watched her to see if she was the one is because she continually came back. And at any point... Probably, if she had said, you know what, this is the third camel, it's getting late, you know, I got mom and dad waiting at home, I still got to refill my water jug and get home, he might, it might have been an indication that he said, you know what, it's okay, you're, you're not necessarily the one. But she did it for all ten. Now here's the thing, this is the awesome part, this is, this is how he knew it was God, and this is how we knew it was the rest of the story, okay? First and foremost, for Abraham, everyone in the story got God's best. Everyone in the story got something that was amazing. Everyone in the story got something that God wanted them to have. For Abraham, he got the best for his child. Every parent in this room, that's what we want for our children. We don't just want our children to be successful. We don't just want our children to you know, be rich. We don't just want our children to have great jobs. If we're Christ followers, what we really want is we want God's best for our children. We want our children, if I could just summarize, because we would add all that up, pretty much we want our children to fall madly in love with Jesus, and we want them to have everything that God wants for them and fulfill the purpose that God has in their life. We want God's best for our children. And Abraham got that. 
because of his relationship with God. Now, the servant, what he got was he got everything. He got the best. He got to be able to say, to go back to his Lord and say, I gave you my best. I served you in a way that was God-honoring and that yielded the results that you, my master, wanted. Not that I wanted, that you, my master, wanted. And that's what each and every one of us, if you're a Christ follower, that's what we want. We want to do and give our best to God. We don't want to give him our leftovers. We don't want to give him, you know what, I get to the end of the day, I have 0.1% energy and life left, and God, you can have that. We want to give God our best. Now, here's the amazing thing, and this is, this is what blows me away, too, is that for Isaac and Rebecca, they got the best that God, God had to offer them. For Isaac, if you read the end of the story, it says that he was grieving the loss of his mother. And his union with Rebecca allowed him to come along and have a companion. Now, he also got, and you could, you know, we read this, he got a hot wife. How loving and awesome, and every husband should say amen, because you should think that your wife, thank you. All right, but he got a hot wife. Now, for Rebecca, if you read through the story, it says that she, the wording that it uses is that she saw him, and she said, who is that? And that doesn't seem that telling. But if you look at the language, it's basically, who is that? With that kind of tone. Because she got someone who was pleasing to her. Literally, when they came together, it was the epitome of what God said in the book of Genesis, a help meet. She got someone who was beautiful. She got someone who was a hard worker. She got someone who had the character traits that God wants to instill in us. She put others before herself. That's an amazing character trait to find someone. And so they all got God's best. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, I just want you to think about this, that there, as we read through God's word, there are so many amazing details in data and historical things that are of historical relevance that God reveals to us through his word. And a lot of times we just walk away and say, you know what, I understand the information. I understand what year this was. I understand the characters that were involved, and I understand that there was a war. Or I understand that someone died. Or I understand that God miraculously provided food. Or I understand this, or I understand that. And we walk away with just the details. And we don't get that God wants his best for us. And the only reason he sent his son is because it was the best course of action that doesn't benefit God. It didn't benefit Jesus Christ. It benefited all of humanity. That it washed away our sin and allowed us to enter into relationship with him. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing a song in a, in a minute, but I just want to pray. God, I pray two things this morning. I pray that every time that we open your word, that we understand that it is a revelation of your best for your children. That even though some of the things we read may seem miraculous or harsh or just sometimes just crazy to us that such things could happen, 
And I pray that we would push past that and say, God, show us through your word what you have in store for me. I pray the second thing, God, is that we would be people willing to show your best to others. That there are people in our circles of influence that we come across, men and women and children, and uh, in, in our daily walks of life, at work, at school, at home, our neighbors, wherever they are, that are yearning to hear that there's a God out there who loves them and has his best in store for them. God, make us vessels and vehicles that carry and share your word with others. And God, for us this morning, I pray that we would never forget just how much you love us, that you gave us your word because you love us, that you gave us your son because you love us, that you filled us with your Holy Spirit because of the amazing love you have for us. God, we are amazed by your love, your goodness, your grace that you continue to pour out on us. God, we pray that we would never, ever forget every day, whether it be a little thing or a big thing, whether you're healing someone from cancer or just providing a parking spot, God, we pray that we would never forget how awesome and amazing you are. God, we lift up all the prayers that we share today. We pray them because of the amazing love that you give to us. God, let us never forget that you always answer prayers with your best. For this, we give you praise and honor and glory. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.